0: Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Borellis. Hi, I'm Patty Lepone.
1: This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hey, everyone. Alan here. I'm just cutting in real fast at the beginning to add a new section to the episodes here. I tentatively calling it the reflection section. If you hate the name, let me know. Feedback at the theaterpodcast.com. The reflection section's purpose will be for me to kind of reflect on what you're about to hear, what I've taken away from the episode, things I've learned, things that changed me, things that th- changed my thought process. And the fun part about it is that you get to hear from producer Jillian Hockman.
0: Hi, everyone. I'm here.
1: <laughs> she is here. She is real. But uh, yeah, she and I talk about this kind of stuff anyway. And then it occurred to us like, why don't we just let you hear it too? Yeah. So um, we'll just dive right in. This interview you're about to hear with Allie Stroker, it was... was eye-opening to me in many different ways. And I actually want to first start with an apology to her. I introduced her in the episode as the first actress in a wheelchair to be on Broadway, but she's in fact the first person in a wheelchair to be on Broadway, regardless of gender. So uh, I'm sorry, Allie. I'm sorry to everybody else listening as well. But the thing that sticks out to me, based that what she said to me that, that um, I still take with me is, um, that she doesn't want to be seen as an inspiration. It's not that she doesn't like it, but she wants to just be like everyone else.
0: Yeah, I was I was listening to that. And what I really kind of took away from that is, yeah, she has to still keep living her life after you're done being inspired. Um, she doesn't exist for your um, reflection or for your thought process of, of anything. She's she's a real person. She lives her day-to-day. Um cool that you got something out of it, but that's not why she's here. And she, because I asked her, I was
1: conflicted. I said, so you you do or you don't want to be inspirational? And she goes, no, I can't, I can't help being an inspiration. I can't help being someone's, ins, you know, inspirational motivation. Um, and she quoted her dad and saying that, that, and I'm probably misquoting her here, that um, you can't control what people think of you, but you can, or what people say to you, but you can control how you react to that. And so she's always tried to remain strong. She's always tried to remain, uh, I guess true to who she wants to be. And if people find her inspirational or not, that's out of her control. And she just chooses to, to live her life.
0: I like the way she also holds herself accountable and and holds other people accountable. You get to choose how you react Mm -hmm. and that ability to be accountable and to be, um, cognizant of your own thoughts and feelings, um, can really make a big difference in how you see the world.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And and that's what I've taken away actually. We we're recording this, you and I, right here, um a couple of days before you released the episode. We we spoke, Allie and I spoke um about a month ago, and and I've thought about that ever since. And and I continually go back to it. And, and I'm always thinking that, you know, it's changed me. It's, it changed the way that I kind of perceive negative experiences in my life ever since then. So uh, I, you know Allie if you're listening thank you for that she that,
0: inspired yeah, you she, and she, she didn't even mean oh, to oh
1: goodness I don't know if she'd like that or not but <laughs> thanks Allie pro- you're the best probably um, cool I guess that's it we'll kick into the episode do you have anything else to add?
0: thanks for listening guys yeah, follow it, us on social media we're at uh, theater underscore podcast on uh, Twitter and Instagram facebook.com slash official theater podcast if you have thoughts feelings want to tell us about your day
1: Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Welcome to The Theatre Podcast, intimate personal conversations with theater's biggest talents. I'm your host, Alan Seals. Today we have with us Allie Stroker, who first entered our hearts and minds when she became a contestant on The Glee Project in 2012, went on to have a starring role on Glee itself, and then in 2015 made history by becoming the first ever actress in a wheelchair to appear on a Broadway stage in the revival of Spring Awakening, produced by Death West Theatre, which was a phenomenal show, by the way. Um, which was a company that also featured many prominent deaf actors uh, she was most recently starring in the off-broadway production of oklahoma as ado annie in addition to being a co-chair of women who care as well as a co-founding member of be more heroic which is an anti-bullying campaign anti-bullying campaign thank you Allie stroker for chatting with me today thank you for having me thank you for being here you do so much you're so active, but I want to actually start, of course, as we always do on this podcast, with your the humble beginnings of, of your origin story. You were a, a, a Jersey girl, yeah? Grew up yes. around New York?
2: Yes. I grew up in Ridgewood, New Jersey, in Bergen County, like about 45 minutes outside of the city, and uh, was lucky enough to be able to come to New York often as a kid and see theater.
1: And then you saw your first Broadway show at what age?
2: I was in first grade. Um, what is that? Six. So probably seven. Seven. I think. And uh, I saw Beauty and the Beast, and you know, it changed my life. I I knew before that that I wanted to do theater. Did you? Um, yeah, I was in a production of Annie in my backyard down at the <laughs> Jersey Shore. Um, our neighbor um, had three kids, and their oldest daughter, Rachel Antonoff, who actually is now um, a well-known fashion designer, she um, came home from Stage Door Manor and decided to direct a production of Annie with the neighborhood kids and cast me as Annie. And I remember watching the VHS like a thousand times and learning, and um, I think I, I kind of figured out how to do the role by imitating and, uh, and then we put up the show at the end of the summer and I was hooked. I was like, this is what I want to do.
1: Oh, so it was an actual, it wasn't like just kids getting out of the backyard. Oh, or- no,
2: no, no, no. The whole neighborhood was invited. We sold tickets, the sandpaper, the local newspaper came out. I mean, this was a big deal, Alan.
1: That's crazy. This was huge. No, it was not. <laughs> Jersey but sure, huge. It
2: truly changed my life because um, I talk a little bit about how theater is my passion, it's my hobby, it's my career, but I really also feel like it saved my life. Um, I was injured in a car accident when I was two mm-hmm. and um, am paralyzed and use a wheelchair and I think when I was introduced to theater, it felt like an outlet for me to, um, to express everything that I was feeling in a safe place and It was the first time that I felt like I was up in front of people and I was being looked at and listened to for the reasons that I wanted to be because as a little girl in a wheelchair, a lot of people look and stare and um, feel bad for you Mm -hmm. and that never felt good and I was aware of that at a very young age Um, but being on stage and having people look at you and listen to you and applaud for you felt really powerful And I just knew after that first experience, I wanted more and more and more.
1: That is, uh, that's really great. I, I, I think a lot of us take for granted, I guess, what, what we, we don't know what we don't know, if that makes sense. And, and this, this is, I don't know if this is going to come across as insensitive, um, but I, I kind of had my first experience with, with a lack of accessibility, um, in especially in New York City, uh, <laughs> you just rolled your eyes, yes.
2: Yes, uh, yes.
1: When I had my first child right. and I have to pull, push a stroller around, right, right? And, right? And just getting around everywhere. But like having to live this day to day and then you were actually, you said you were late <laughs> here to this interview because like the 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 weather is getting to you to like everything just... Kind of like centers around that sometimes.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. So I have lived in New York since two thousand and five. So New York City is not like a new home for me. But I think what um, anyone can relate to, whether you're walking around on two feet, or you're rolling around, or you're using crutches, or you need a cane, or or however you get around New York, there are a lot of <laughs> obstacles. And being in a chair, um, it's like you have to figure out your rhythm and any sort of elements that throw you off your your rhythm and your track um, is a test of patience. And mm-hmm. I was talking about that actually today, that when my patience thins, the first place that I feel frustrated is at New York because um, this city has made huge strides to make um, make the the um, streets and the sidewalks accessible, but we still deal with like um, subways not being accessible and um, and so I get around a certain way, but you add rain into the picture. Well, you can't hold an umbrella while you're pushing a wheelchair. Yeah. So you get wet and that's kind <laughs> of a part of it. And it's charming for a few years. And then there are days where it ain't so charming. And um, I, it's so funny that you were saying like you, were, you, you had this first experience when you had um, a child and had a stroller to deal with. I have so many moms like relate, you know, and they're like, you know, either pushing down the street next to me or, uh, wherever they're like, you know, I didn't realize how tricky this is until I had a baby and had like a stroller to use. And, uh, you know, and I, I think part of my perspective is like, I never blame people for not knowing what they don't know. Mm -hmm. Like I, I don't go around every day thinking about what it's like to be blind and get around New York city. I don't expect people to understand what it's like to get around in a chair, but something that I do love about New York is that people are always willing to help. And there's sort of this like team um, spirit that at least I feel and I look for in people because there are times that I do need help. And, uh, you know, there are times that sometimes I fall out of my chair or whatever. And I'm never on, on the ground for more than three seconds before some New Yorker has me Back up in my chair, checking to make sure I'm okay, picking up my bags, people asking if I need help up hills and ramps. And um, I just am really fortunate to, I think, also um, be willing to accept help. Yeah, uh, That's a kind of vulnerable position to put yourself in sometimes. And I have a love-hate relationship with that as well because sometimes um, needing help means... Having to articulate the kind of help that you need, and um, (laughs) not everyone's a good listener. So sometimes (laughs) dealing with somebody who thinks that they know how to help, when really, actually, that kind of help is not as helpful. If this is making any sense, hope you're following.
1: (laughs) It it is. I think I I think I'm good picking up. Yeah. It's, and I've actually struggled with this in my personal life too. Of uh, I'm a fixer. I'm a I'm a doer, Mm -hmm. and my wife is. Helped me out immensely with this particular skill, which is a learned skill. I think for a lot of people is sometimes the best way to help is just to listen,
0: mm-hmm. not to
1: try to just go out and fix it right, right away. Right, and that's yeah, that's what I, I personally am always fighting that urge in myself to just go yeah. fix the stuff.
2: And I can I can say that um, I feel like every day I am challenged to figure things out for myself as far as how I'm going to make something work. But over the past few years, I've thought a little bit about that, that concept of making it work because sometimes I end up accommodating for other people more than I'm accommodating for myself. Mm. And uh, that I've had um, people in my life who I really love and respect help me sort of refocus that because Um, Growing up with a disability, you don't want to be a hassle. You don't want to make things more complicated for people. So a lot of times you will accommodate for them instead of asking what you want or what you need. And this has come up around accessibility Mm -hmm. in the theater world because um, theaters by law make it accessible for patrons but they don't actors. always make it accessible. The stages aren't always accessible. And I made a promise to myself after I finished doing spring awakening and becoming the first person in a wheelchair to be on Broadway, to only perform in accessible venues hmm. for both patrons and actors. And, um, that has put me in a position of having to have conversations and having to say no. And, uh, it can be painful because at the end of the day, I'm a performer like anyone else. And I, I just want to perform. I want to, I want to do the job, Mm -hmm. but I also feel a social responsibility to set a certain um, standard that as a performer who has a disability that I'm not just saying, Oh no, it's fine. If you don't have a ramp or you don't have a way for me to get on stage, I'll just be carried because I'm a 30, 31 year old woman. And, I don't want to be carried on stage. I want to enter in in my chair, which is my power. That's Mm -hmm. how I get around. And I think it's a statement to enter in your skin, literally. And my chair is a part of that. So that's been a big learning kind of experience for me to trust that people will make the accommodations for me. And that if they won't, then saying that I'm not available and that I won't do it is also making the right impact, Mm -hmm. Uh, maybe even stronger than if I was there performing. Uh, So that's kind of uh, a new thing over the past three years that I've committed to, but feel very clear about.
1: Have have you ever said no to a contract and then they've said, oh, we'll, we'll accommodate. Can you please do this? Or has it always just kind of come back later? Well,
2: it has. Um, so, for example, like I am invited to do many speaking gigs all over the country. And in those speaking gigs, I sing and I talk about my experience being on Broadway. I talk about my experience going through school, living my life in a chair, being a woman, all parts. And... At times we've run into situations where they're like, oh, it's not accessible. And I'm very fortunate to have incredible representation who talks to them about what is needed. Um, So I will either be a part of those conversations or not. And, um, you know, it's been a learning curve for my representatives as well to Mm -hmm. learn what it is that I need and also to guide and help people because if they're reaching out to me, they want me to come, but sometimes they don't they don't have the education or they don't know what kind of accommodations I would need, or what is available out there. So <laughs> it's that wearing two different hats of like being an advocate, being in, you know, being um, an educator, and then also wanting to just be a performer. Mm-hmm. so um sometimes I allow my representatives to do those conversations so that I get to show up and be the good guy. <laughs> <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Which is a privilege to have that mm-hmm. um, representation. But, but I also am excited and um, eager to have conversations like that with people around accessibility because like you said before, it's a world that you don't know unless you need to know.
1: Right. Yeah. I want to back up to College days, you went to NYU Tisch School, yeah, um, and studied dance despite not having use of your legs.
2: Yes, so Uh, I studied drama, and a part of the drama program was a dance component where I had to um, take dance class three mm -hmm. times a week. And at the beginning of that, uh, I was met with some hesitation from my teachers because, again, they had never had an experience working with somebody in a chair, and they were um, nervous. They had fear because it was something they did not know. And uh, after about a month, I was taking dance class, and and it worked out beautifully. And NYU has been such a supportive, um, you know, institution, and and they've been behind me, one hundred percent. But at the beginning, we had to love. How we had to have a lot of tough conversations about. Sometimes it's hard to hear what people are actually afraid of. And I appreciate how honest they were with me about what they were nervous about. It was also a painful experience to be in because I, at 18, moving to New York and studying drama, all I wanted to do was be like everyone else. Mm -hmm. I wasn't quite ready to understand that not being like everyone else was going to be really rewarding. At the time, I was like, I want to just be treated like everyone else. And um, it's also difficult when you're in a position where you have to educate your educators. <laughs> yeah. You know, that, that, is, that is tricky. But what I do know is that it has helped me so much not wait for someone else to give me answers. Like in an audition, In um, a rehearsal, I have to, I I use the term translate a lot, especially when it comes to movement,
0: Mm -hmm. um,
2: like how it will work in my body and um, in my chair. And I just automatically do it at this point in my life. I don't wait for somebody else to tell me how. And the truth is, I'm the only one who knows how because I live it. Right. And... I have yet to work with a director in a chair. So um that will be really cool at some point to do that. But Do you um, want to direct? Have no.
1: you
2: thought about it? No. <laughs> no. No thanks. Um my boyfriend's a director and I'll leave the directing to him. Um, but I um I I I love to perform and uh, and in many ways I find myself in positions of giving ideas and collaborating a lot and i appreciate that because in many ways i don't i don't know if someone else would come up with the ideas because back to what you said like you don't know what you don't know mm-hmm.
1: and you can basically add choreographer to your resume now you've been you've been writing <laughs> your own stuff
2: yeah I, I the dance part is always yeah. really fun because um dancing is always very specific to every to everybody, to every performer. Um in my case I have like this extra kind of piece to choreograph into, which is like my chair. And and what I think is really beautiful about adding um choreography with a performer in a chair is that it's another kind of vocabulary, like having wheels on stage is just like another texture to Mm -hmm. choreography, to dance, to movement, to the world. And I think this is sort of going off on a different tangent, but I think that we as artists have so much power in getting to expose a truth on stage for an audience that, For two hours, for an hour and a half, for three hours, is just immersed into a world that might not be their own. And in some ways, forced to watch because, Alan, like, I can't tell you how many times I'm out in public and I can feel people resisting staring at me because socially we're taught not to stare, not to ask, not to point. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of curiosity around disability. And at the theater, in, the, like, in movies, on television, you, you get to stare and watch and figure out why or how this person lives in the world and, or whatever world they're you know, a part of. And I think we have so much power being able to do that. Because the only way that we move through discomfort is to expose ourselves and to educate ourselves. Mm-hmm. And it's astonishing to me how often, you know, there's this huge diversity movement and how often disability is not counted in it. And I think part of that is the history of disability. And that goes back to the fact that like the um, Americans with Disabilities Act was not passed until 1990. Yeah. And so we, before that, it was not, as, as, as a, as an American with a disability, it was not, you did not have free, not free. Let me reword that. As an American with a a disability, you did not have equal rights. You did not have equal access to the world. You just didn't. Mm -hmm. Talk about accommodating for others. And so, I have to remember that, like, we're still at the beginning of this. And, um, you know, in many ways, people with disabilities used to not, they were not mainstreamed in schools. They didn't go to normal schools. They, um, you know, were not a part of mainstream Life
1: mm-hmm.
2: and uh, and so there are still a lot of leftovers that we're trying to sort through to learn how to deal with disability, and that brings me to another point that I want to talk about, which is <laughs> this piece around how easy it is for an audience member or someone who is not disabled to quickly label disability as inspirational. Huh. And I have a lot of mixed feelings about that because I understand why someone is inspired by somebody who is doing something with a disability, doing it differently, maybe seen as having a limitation and still forging on. However, It feels like this really easy label to slap onto something involving somebody with a disability. And in many ways, it makes me feel further from feeling understood Hmm. and seen. Because it feels cheap. It feels like, um, it feels so surface level. It's like... Yeah, to you, I might be an inspiration here like grocery shopping. But like for me, this is my everyday life. So for you to come up to me and tell me how inspiring I am, you're getting something out of that that makes you feel good. But for me, it kind of jolts my day Mm. because this is my normal. Yeah. And I know that a lot of my... Friends from the disabled community agree with me that it it is at times infantilizing and makes you feel like, is this is this like just for your own benefit? Like, why am I not being seen as um, a citizen or 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 just a human being who is equal? Like it doesn't make you feel feel equal, right. But like because it's inspiration and because it's like positive, you then um f- it feels acceptable and and I'm just wanting to call it out
1: <laughs> well you you would you call yourself an activist though because you do a lot of like speaking as you said mm-hmm. and so I would consider it some sort of activism in a sense. Uh, you know, the Women women Who Care, your co-chair, which supports uh, United Cerebral Palsy of New York City. Yeah. And then the Be More Heroic anti-bullying campaign. Like, so, Yeah, I guess I'm conflicted about, about where you stand because, I can be like, conflicted in my understanding because you said, in one hand, you don't want to be told you're inspirational, but it seems to me through your speaking that you're trying to inspire.
2: So, I cannot control how other people see me. And that was, like, a lesson I had to learn very, very young. That, like, I'm not going to be able to tell people what I am and am not mm-hmm. to them. Like, and that's for anybody, right? Like, we, we don't have control over other people's opinions. All we have control over is our response and how we lead or as I like to say how we are hosting our party. <laughs> and so in many ways I think part of why I speak and why I am involved in all of these different outreach, you know, programs for people who need support is because my driving um force is that i have been given so much support and so much love and so much encouragement and i feel like i am in a position to give back and selfishly it makes me feel good that i have something to give mm-hmm. even if i'm seen as someone who maybe at times needs help right and you know when i speak What I talk about is a lot of this this concept that my dad has taught me around E plus R equals O, which is the events of our lives plus our response equals the outcome. Now, you don't often have a lot of control over the events of your life, but you have 100% control over your response. So the outcome is in your hands. And so many of us move through our lives feeling like we have no control over the smallest things. But we do. And living with a disability has taught me that I do not have control over being able to walk, being able to feel my 70% of my body. But I do have control over the way I want to move through the world, the way I see the world, and how I want to treat other people. Mm -hmm. So whether that's inspiring or not, I can't control it. I just like to bring it up because I think that it makes people think. I think it makes us think beyond just what America feeds us around disability, like with the Paralympics and the Special Olympics and the inspiring music and the clips. Like, what else? Like, I'm disabled, but I'm also a lot of other things. Mm -hmm. And I just like uh, something that I just— feel across the board is that people are quick to just say that they're inspired, but what else? What else? And, um, again, like I can't control what else, and maybe it's not as positive, so maybe I don't want to hear it. (laughs) However, (laughs) I do think that the only way that we progress is by, um, looking inside of ourselves and actually listening and and observing what we feel around new things. <laughs> and for many people, disability is new.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I, I wish more people would talk about it. I think there's a push these days to talk about mental health specifically. Yeah, and I think um, that
2: mental health, part of why it's being discussed is it's something that we can't see on the outside.
1: Well, People are afraid of it. Of and, course and,
2: it's something that we don't know in, and we can't see.
1: In America, it, it seems it seems to be a thing for me for with Americans. Like other people from other countries I talk to have there's less of a stigma from what I'm finding mm-hmm. out. But like saying, Oh yeah, I went to therapy. My therapist is talking to me about this, blah, blah, blah. Uh that is hugely taboo mm-hmm. in this country. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I um Some of the closest people in my life have, um, you know, issues with mental health. And I have had issues at times in my life with mental health. And uh, I don't feel like I um, am as articulate around that subject. But I do know that it's something, or at least something that when... People are much more likely to have compassion and reach out when it's something that they can see. Mm-hmm. And if they can't, then they just assume whatever.
1: Like if you fall out of a chair, it's easy to help you back up.
2: Right. But if you're having a panic attack and somebody can't see that mm-hmm. or whatever you're, whatever the mental health experience is, there's not as much compassion around it. Right. So, um, Yeah. <laughs>
1: Did you have any role models growing up? Uh, I guess any, well, I guess one side of it, who were your role models in general, but did any of the role models have disabilities?
2: No, I did not have any role models with disabilities. And in some ways that was on purpose and in some ways it wasn't. So growing up, um, I was not immersed into the disabled community. Um there was one other student in my grade who had a disability or a physical disability. He had cerebral palsy. Um my brother has a traumatic brain injury from the car accident that we were in. So we both grew up with um special needs mm-hmm. and um but it wasn't until I was 18 and moved out to LA that I got to know some people from the community. And I think the reason that I didn't, first of all, like the internet, social media thing, like it wasn't just easy to find people like me, like it is now. Like you can go on Instagram and find other women that are my age in chairs and reach mm-hmm. out and be connected and follow them and um, and and be exposed and, and look up and, and all that kind of stuff, which I think is so cool and so amazing. But I think there was also fear for me that i wanted as a kid to so badly be like everyone else that being a part or having role models with disabilities in some ways didn't make me feel like i was like everyone else mm-hmm. and it took me a long time to be able to like look in the mirror and really like what i see and when you have friends in chairs when you have role models in chairs it's like looking in the mirror all the time and mm-hmm it was really scary to, um, see that it took me a long, it's been a long journey to become comfortable and confident in my skin. I have not always been like this (laughs) at all, but I think that I also found people from my community at the time that I was ready and needed it.
1: Yeah. So outside of being in a chair, uh, what what defines you? What is your personality like?
2: Oh, that's a fun question. What am I like? Well, I am... You um, just <laughs>
1: perked up a lot. <laughs> yeah,
2: well, this is fun because in interviews often I am talking and advocating about disability, and sometimes I feel like that's the first thing, and it's just fun to not always have to do that. So, um, so me, so I'm a really positive... Um, upbeat person I love to cook I love food yeah um yeah I love it I love to eat out I love to my boyfriend and I cook a lot um I love um giving gifts and um I love my friends and my family and um I love traveling I love the beach and I love to swim (laughs) <laughs> it's like one of my favorite things. Um, and what else? I am really outgoing, and I love to chat. Alan, I can get on the phone and like talk for like three hours with my best friends. Um, and what else? i I love to um I love to craft. like I love to make cards and make scrapbooks and uh, I love to learn. I am doing all my favorites. <laughs> I love to learn, um, and I love my life. And I sometimes I ask my mom. I'm like, "Have I always been like this? Like, what about what was I like?" She was like, "Yes, since you were a baby, you mm-hmm. just like loved observing the world, and you just like were really easygoing, and." Like, I just had these big blue eyes and and just, like, very even-tempered. And um, I'm stubborn. <laughs> and <laughs> and um, I am loyal and protective. And I love to dream. My mom's always told me that. Like, I've always been a dreamer. I've always had these, like, big dreams that— i wanted to accomplish and have. And in some ways those dreams might not have always been like everybody else's, like something growing up. Like I always wanted to like live in New York city and like I wanted to be able to be on my own. And I have been able to do that, which Mm -hmm. has been so cool. And I never have taken my independence for granted because, um, I think like growing up and needing a lot of help, um, I used to dream and think about like what what is it going to take to not need this help? What is it going to take to be able to live in my own apartment and get up and shower and get dressed and go out and push and go into stores and open doors and all these little things that at this point in my life are just normal but like took a long time to have the physical strength to, like, accomplish. So when I got there, I was like, I can take on the world. I can do anything. And um, I've traveled to South Africa um, three times doing um, a teaching program in Johannesburg with um, a, a, a nonprofit called Arts Inside Out. And um, – Yeah. It
1: works with children affected by HIV and AIDS. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And that's the other thing. Like, I haven't always felt like I need to just help my community. Like, I, I, every single human being has challenges Mm -hmm. and struggles. They just all look different. And so, you know, I have challenges, but that doesn't mean that I can't help other people who have other challenges or the same challenges as me. And how much that has helped me. Mm-hmm. Literally, like get out of your own head, get out of your own way and realize that you might be in a position of needing a lot of help or or having a lot of challenges, but that doesn't mean you can't help somebody else.
1: Yeah, I read your your motto is make your limitations your opportunity. Yeah. I think it's that's very simply and brilliantly put.
2: Yeah, well, that's kind of how I was raised that, you know, this thing that people might see as your limitation, you can't blank, you can't walk, you can't run, you can't play soccer, but I have this wheelchair and I can do really cool things in it and I can sing. And all of a sudden you have this choice to either look at what you can do or what you can't. Do. And looking at the things that you can do was sort of um, the only option growing up. I had really good parents, and they just were like, We're going to put all of our attention on what you can do. Mm -hmm. And you might not be able to run down that soccer field, but you can sing. And that was the gift you were given. And I say this all the time, but like for me, singing is like running singing is like playing on the playground because there's no limitation. I don't have limitation with my voice. And so that's where I feel like I can be free.
1: Were they always supportive of your your dreams and aspirations to be on Broadway? Yes. Yeah.
2: Always. Not only were they supportive, they were like you can and you will. And so my so when I got to college I was like it's not a matter of if, it's just how mm-hmm. and when. And that's how I feel about a lot of my dreams and goals is that it's never been, I've never been like, a like oh, like, like have a backup. Like, no, that's not how I live my life. It's just how are we going to make this happen? And being a dreamer, I think the challenge is to get clear on what I want and to actually move forward with my actions to achieve what I want because it's easy to dream, but to actually... Put things into action is the vulnerable, scary, hard part.
1: It's it's so hard for so many people. Yes, I, I, I know so yes. many people that are like, I can do these great things if I just had the time, or if I just could make this happen. Or I'm like, no, just go out and do it. I, I, that, but yes, that, but that is the that is the fixer doer in me, right?
2: Exactly. Right, you're gonna give them the answer. Right, but the truth is, everyone can talk about their dreams or even give advice about how to do their dreams or someone else's. But, and especially as I get older and, and want to create some of my own things, I realize, Oh, this is a lot harder than talking about it or writing a list to actually move through. Cause there's a lot of fear of whatever failure or, um, being looked at as somebody who is wrong or or is, is not um doing something right. You know, all mm-hmm. the all the bullshit, I guess we could say, but <laughs> maybe we're not allowed to say that on this podcast.
1: Whatever, we can say it. I have now made the rule. We can mm-hmm. say that. Um sorry, parents listening with your kids in the car, but that is <laughs> that is how we roll. That's how we roll here. Um The Glee Project. Mm-hmm. You made it to the final episode, placed second, mm-hmm. earning you an actual guest star on Glee, yeah. the show. Uh, did that, was was that a big turning point for you, I guess, career-wise or personality-wise? Did, was that like a moment where you're like, oh yeah, I can do this? Or was the Glee it, project, I knew I would do it?
2: No, the Glee project was really cool because it was this amazing platform. Um, it was a reality TV show for me to not only perform and do it, I love and what I'm good at, but also to share my story. And because of my wheelchair, I think that people were really curious. So I had this massive platform to sort of answer that question and get it out of the way (laughs) (laughs) because I think that there was a lot of curiosity. So Mm -hmm. it was really perfect. And um, as far as like, as far as I got, um, that had just to do with the fact that I knew that this was something that I was meant to do. Like Glee, from the first time I saw it, I was like, oh, this is a world I don't have to invent. Like this is a world I fit into. And not just because there was a character in a wheelchair, but because it was musical theater and it was young people was my like age group and it was celebrating the underdog. And that is in some ways, I think how... Um, the industry saw me as like somebody who was different but talented and and had something to share. So um, the Glee Project was just like a really perfect kind of break for me, um, even though I had been performing since I was seven years old. So mm. it wasn't like, a, oh, then I realized I could do this. Like I always knew I could do it. It was just like I sort of see my career as like, Every opportunity leads to the next. And this was just a really big opportunity that got to open other doors.
1: Yeah, I enjoyed I enjoyed watching you on Glee. I was I watched oh, cool. a lot a lot of Glee. Yeah,
2: Glee's amazing. And back in the day. And Glee was so important to so many people because it was a platform where they were representing all kinds of people.
1: In Spring Awakening, did you did you know any ASL before you started? I, I knew the alphabet.
2: And that was it. But I remember at the callback, we had to learn the sign language for Purple Summer and just falling in love with it because it was another moment where I was like, oh, my gosh, I can use my hands. Sign language, I'm not limited in in doing this. Sign language is like a world that I can just fly in. So it was just sort of this perfect— again, another perfect opportunity that came my way. And also to be working with other people with disabilities and uh, Deaf West and Michael Arden really saw what many people might see as a limitation as an opportunity to tell a story in a a different way. And that was like exactly the kind of thing that I was trying to do myself. And I can hear and, um, but I can't, you know, I can't push my wheelchair and sign. So there were times when like my friends who were deaf were helping me on stage. And then there were times that I was helping them. And in so many ways, it just felt like, like, like this natural world that I was just meant to be in. And I'm so glad that that's how I made my Broadway debut because it was just like, Without sounding kind of corny, like it was really right on brand. Like it was like <laughs> right. Like it was like the perfect right, right situation. And michael Arden, um, is such a visionary. and he really um he just really believed in in me and and everything that I could do from the beginning. And those are the people that I like to work with, that those people that are wanting to do something different. Because hiring somebody in a wheelchair is still considered different.
1: Did you know Michael before you started the production?
2: Not well, no. no. I knew of him and he yeah. knew of me, but now he's like family and um my boyfriend has worked with him since I'm um, once on this island and uh, you know, yeah all in the family now.
1: So you mentioned your boyfriend a couple times. Yes. How, how do you identify sexually?
2: Um, I it's a great question. I <laughs> Today, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I I am so deeply in love with my boyfriend and um feel like I'm in such a perfect partnership for myself. And uh I have I I was in a relationship with um a woman who now identifies um as non binary. So like The way that I live my life, I am not that into like putting boxes around things, but I think I identify as bisexual because of this experience that I had before I started dating David, but I'm in a relationship now that I want for a very long time and um, he identifies as um, male and I identify as female. So I guess then it would be, I'm heterosexual. And so, uh, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I guess, I guess that's, I mean, it's strange for me to just say that I'm straight because of um, this experience before. But when being in a relationship that I feel so clear about, it's hard Mm -hmm. for me to be like, I'm bisexual because I don't look at women anymore I don't really I'm not really looking for anybody else
1: so we're not looking for other men either right that's right yeah so
2: so I guess I don't know I identify as um being in love (laughs) (laughs) and and, um and um that you know I'm I'm not somebody who is that my attention is not taken by gender or um, sexual orientation. That's not, like, where my mind is at this point in my life. Um, and I'm so grateful for the experience that I had in my last relationship where we talked so much about gender and sexuality um, because of what they were going through. So um, so anyway, yeah, it's it's, you know, all shades of...
1: Gray. I think it's so important. Again, this is something else that people are afraid to talk about mm-hmm. is, is gender identification yeah. and whatnot. I mean, I, I would see a head over heels almost every night if I could. I'd yeah. love, love that show. Yeah. And the first character in uh, Peppermint, right? Right, right, right. Who is, right,
2: right.
1: Who is a trans, a first, Broadway's first transgender actress who's uh, who is who's playing a character who's the first non-bar- nine sorry, the first non-binary character yeah. on Broadway. And I think it's just, it's it's a conversation people need to have.
2: Absolutely. And I also have strong feelings about relationships and that, you know, David, um, I don't want to speak for him, but like, I don't think he ever imagined being with somebody in a chair. And, you know, I never imagined before I was with him being with, Someone who now identifies as non-binary, but who at the time identified as a woman. So, you know, I don't think relationships are ever the ones that we see in our heads. Like, reality is so different. Mm -hmm. And I wish that I, at the time, knew that if I continued to work on myself and, like, explore who I am and love who I am that I would then attract the right relationship Mm -hmm. for that time and I think that I have and I was fortunate enough to be in and am in a relationship now where um, there's so much respect and both of us honor each other for who we are so much that whether good things are coming up or bad things are coming up we know how to support each other and you people change all the time. You don't know what life is bringing you. You, the only thing for certain in a relationship is change. Mm-hmm. So, if you can begin to trust yourself in those situations, I think you can find peace in relationships.
1: Are you attracted to energy or emotion in others more than anything? I mean, obviously, it's not. A physical thing per se, of like this band, this person has a penis, therefore I am attracted yeah. to them. Um
2: I don't know. Uh I I'll tell you all the reasons why I was attracted to David. Um he's fearless, he is creative, he is compassionate, he's sensitive. And he is extremely aware and articulate about his own feelings, opinions, and experiences. And for me in a relationship, I have to be able to articulate what I feel and I need to have a partner who can do the same. Mm -hmm. And he's also the hottest guy I've ever seen in my
1: life. (laughs) So that helps. (laughs)
2: Um, But yeah, you know, I feel differently about a relationship now at 31. Like, I think depending on where you are in your life, certain things matter more. Um, But at this point in my life, I feel so lucky to be in a relationship where both of us... um, are accountable and are wanting to show up and be our best selves for each other.
1: I think that is a wonderful place to close us out here. Oh, great. Uh, one
2: more thing. Oh, yeah. We didn't talk about Oklahoma.
1: Oh, yeah. Can I about? just say one thing? Yes, please. Okay.
2: So I have had the opportunity to play Ado Annie in Oklahoma at St. Ann's Warehouse and it was a production that changed my life. How so? Um, because it was a role that I saw one way for a long time, and when I was given the opportunity to um, play it, I realized that it was many other things, and um, I got to like give it my spin, and uh, and. I love this character so much. And I think that um, Oklahoma, um, this specific production at St. Anne's Warehouse has allowed people to see um, m- this musical in a very different way. And that turns me on.
1: How is it different from the standard production that people might know?
2: It's a lot darker. It's a lot darker. You really hear the script. Um The book, you know, the scenes, a lot of times Oklahoma's done where you don't really hear the lines, but you remember the music and this specific production is slowed way down and you really hear the scenes and the way that these people are talking sort of stripped down. And I think that it reminds us that this American musical that we sort of, in my opinion, have labeled as sort of like a happy, feel good musical um, has a lot of grit and a lot of darkness, just like our country has, you know, we have a lot of good and we have a lot of bad. Mm -hmm. It's not, it's not bad to look at the other parts. And right now in history, I think it is important to remember that we're made up of both and that the only way that we can move forward and progress is by, actually owning and taking accountability for both.
1: Well, I, I hope that everyone listening saw the production. The, it was extended once. Uh, hopefully it will continue to have a revival later on down the line. Um, yeah, sold out hard to get, it, almost impossible to get tickets at, at, uh, before it closed. So. Can I
2: ask you one question? Yeah. You have one minute. Why did you start doing
1: this? Why did I? Yeah. I'm in love with knowledge mm-hmm. these days. And... What about it? I think it just makes people... <sighs> For, oh, this is h- hard to articulate. No one's asked me this yet. For me, I, I was... I'm in a place with my own mental health where I'm finally at 38 now and just starting to be totally comfortable being vulnerable. Mm. And so I feel like theater people are my people. I have my own background in musical theater from my one of many past lives. And I got out of that scene for a while and miss it, missed it every day. And this is, you know, I have friends, you, I've known you for years, uh, friends in in the business who have gone on to do great things. And I'm just now starting to have these conversations, deeply vulnerable conversations with people. IRL. In real life. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I need more of this. And I wanted to to consume it in, a, in podcasts that are having a resurgence. And so I was like, oh, I'll just start looking for this. And then I couldn't really find exactly what I was looking for. And so I said, I'll just do it. And so here we are talking and chatting about what makes these people that everyone listening may never have direct access to other than through a playbill or through a YouTube video or something. And I want to bring your knowledge, bring your light, bring your energy to anybody, everybody listening right now, to as a way to, to find out who you really are. What were your challenges? What got you to where you are to make you this incredible person now that everybody is looking up to for inspiration for lack of a better word? Yeah. Um,
2: okay, so I have a proposition for you. What's that? That you, mean you can say no, but can I interview you for an hour?
1: Yeah.
2: Okay. (laughs) Because something that happens a lot is I am in a position where people are asking me questions. But my favorite kind of conversations is when I get to ask questions back. Yeah. So this is your show. So (laughs) this can go in whatever way you want. But… I think it would be cool, since the show is closing soon, to come back and I'll have a list of questions to ask you. Okay. And then if you want to air that or if you want to cut it up and put, like, a piece of it at the end of each one, whatever you want. But oh. But… I think, you know, whenever I'm listening to podcasts, you hear somebody in a position of asking the questions. Yeah. And sometimes I think, why are they asking those questions? And why do they want to know what they want to know? And I just have, for somebody who respects and loves theater so much and then is no longer involved with it, I think there are a lot of people out there that did theater for a long time and then let it go. And I have questions about what that's like, not because that's something that I specifically want to do, but what it feels like to allow that part of your life to not be your focus any longer.
1: Oh, wow. Yeah, we can, we're going to talk for a long time. Okay, let's do it. Okay. Okay. Yeah.
2: Um, I already, I'm going to like write down some questions on my way out to CNN's right now. And you can tell me whether or not you want to see them, or if you want to be surprised.
1: I want to be surprised. Okay, cool. Yeah, I don't like. Oh, All right, then fine.
2: Well, I'll see you. <laughs> I'll see you again. I'll see you again, and we're doing this again. And okay.
1: Can- yeah, yeah. So I've got three standard questions oh, cool. that I ask everyone okay. here. Very simply, what motivates you?
2: I am motivated by creating representation for the younger generation so that they can see powerful people with disabilities in the world.
1: And what advice would you give to your younger self and younger people listening now starting out down a similar path?
2: Everything you're unsure about yourself, every part of yourself that you're not sure people will love are the things that one day you're going to be so happy are a part of who you are and you will be loved for every, every flaw, every part of you that is different.
1: As someone who was bullied as a kid, that's (laughs) kind of making me cry here. Um, Last question, if you could only see one show for the rest of your life, but you could see it as many times as you want. What would you say? The Wiz. <laughs>
2: Why? I love The Just Wiz. Love I love The Wiz.
1: Fair.
0: It was
2: the first musical I ever did on a real stage. Yeah? Uh, I played Dorothy. And um, I think The Wiz is uh, a story and that no matter where you are in your life, you can connect to some part of it. And I think the music is really rich and powerful and, um, and moving.
1: Wonderful. So on the internet, everyone can connect with you on Instagram and Twitter at Ali Stroker, A-L-I Stroker. And uh, that's, that's it. Yeah. No no yeah. YouTube's.
2: No, no, no. I um I think social media is a really wonderful tool. And I also think it's something that we abuse. So I have a very specific relationship with it that I'm trying to honor and not take advantage of. But it's really hard to stay in a clear place about um social media and exposure maybe I'll come back another time and we can have an hour conversation <laughs> about exposure. <laughs> but we live in a world where everything's so overexposed. And so um, I I love being able to connect with a lot of people. I also want to be known and seen for my work and not for my posts.
1: I really love that answer. Um, speaking of... Being known for your posts, yes. You can get more of me and the theater podcast <laughs> at theater underscore podcast. Also on Instagram and Twitter, facebook.com slash official theater podcast. Are you on Facebook? Yes. You are? What is your Allie favorite?
2: Allie Stroker.
1: Facebook.com slash Ali Stroker. Yeah. And then, of course, the theaterpodcast.com is how you can easily listen and subscribe and share and all those fun things that you have to do on the internet these days and if you're listening on an app right now, just go in, give a review. Please provide an honest review. I read them. I think they're important. I love the feedback. You can also email email me, feedback at the theaterpodcast.com Please, questions, comments, concerns, anything. And the music you're hearing under you right now is from Jukebox the Ghost. Lovely friends. Who allowed us to use music for this podcast? Love them. Visit them at jukeboxtheghost.com. And again, Ali Stroker. Thank you so much for this chat. This has been thank wonderful. Thank
2: you so much, Alan.
0: Take a deep breath,
1: make the world a little colorful.